Hi, my name is Lynn Marshke, and welcome to Overtime, presented by VitalSeat. Overtime is a show about athletes. It's a show about athletes, their careers, their post-playing careers, rediscovering themselves, reinventing themselves, and later on, making a difference, not only to themselves, but to those around them and the causes they believe in. Overtime takes a look not only at the athlete as a person, but the athlete as a man that will make a difference in so many different ways and not only reaching the peak of his life as an athlete, the peak of his life in a career, but also previewing and looking forward to the top of the life mountain and inventing himself and discovering what comes next. What is the next step in life? What is the next step towards a successful end of his career? How does a young man from outside of Philadelphia grow up to be one of hockey's all-time greatest goalkeepers, leading a titleless original NHL franchise to its first championship in 54 years. Also go on to represent America in the Olympics, winning a silver medal. Retire from competition as one of the most successful American-born players at his position. Return to college at Yale earning his degree with a focus on environmental policy and become a career driving force in clean energy and power. Michael Richter embodies the journey we discuss on Overtime. A world-class athlete who not only excelled at his position, led the New York Rangers to their first Stanley Cup championship in 54 years, won a medal as a player representing his country in the Olympics, retired with over 300 wins as a professional goalie, had the courage to return to college after retirement and become an expert and leader in making the environment better and go on to found a company focused on resource efficiency. A man who continues to do all he can for charity and humanity an all-star in the game of life. Mike Richter. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. Mike, I want to start your young days outside of Philadelphia. You decided to play hockey. What was it about hockey that drove you to the sport? And what was it about the position of goalkeeper that kind of made you want to take on that very demanding position? Well, you know, I didn't feel it was so much demanding as just fun. Um, ice hockey was one of many sports I played as a kid. I had two older brothers and growing up in a small suburb of Philadelphia, that's what you did. And um, I just had a ball every day, it seemed, just competing, whether it's in the schoolyard, playing soccer games or more organized sports. But at the time, the Philadelphia Flyers were winning championships. So if you can imagine, I was born in 66 and you're 
eight, nine years old when the Broad Street Bullies were kind of hitting their stride. So they, Bobby Clark, Bernie yeah. Perrant, Bernie Perrant. A team that you love to hate if you're not from Philadelphia, but easy to embrace if you're from there. It was a gritty team. They were a talented team. Um, they had incredible personalities, as you say. Bernie Perrant was my, you know, I idolized him. And, and uh, you know, he's a Hall of Fame goaltender. He won both of his championships with shutouts. He had a cool style. He's from Quebec. Um, so we, there was a million little Bernie Perrants running around the city of uh, Philadelphia growing up. I mean, I loved, I played football, soccer, every sport, but that one is was slightly different and growing as, as my older brother, Joe and I played. Joe became a goalie. He's three years older than I, I was a very average forward. I love the game. Um, and he said, you know, you're just going to copy off of me. And I said, no, I'm my own man. And of course I copied off of him and was able to take his pads and everything else. But one thing that goaltending allowed was you could play. I would play in men's league with my older brother, John, who's eight years older than I am. So if I'm 10 years old, he's 18 playing in a beer league. And I got to play with older guys. Um, there was only one goaltender on the team. So I never had to worry about waiting on a shift. I couldn't stand that as a kid, you know, you'd, you go out there and play and now you're waiting for everybody else to go. And then it's your turn. And as a kid, you just want action. And as a goaltender, I loved it. You know, there was responsibility. There was uniqueness to the position. And, and clearly it was uh, a challenge, right? You can be great one day, not the next. And how do you try to create that sense of mastery over, over yourself more than anything else. And that compelled me from day one still does today, but that's how I got going. The Philadelphia Flyers were winning. And so everybody was gravitating toward ice hockey, but the position of goaltending in particular was so challenging. My older brother did it. I could take his used equipment. It was ability for me to play with older people and never come out of the net. It was ideal. Now, Mike, there are lifestyle changes to becoming mm -hmm. an advanced player in most sports, hockey included. Um, you leave and you go to a different school as you get a little bit older, yeah. up in Lake Placid. What was that like for you? What was that like for you from a social standpoint as well as a playing standpoint? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, Lynn, back then, um, if you wanted to play in the pros, you had to maybe suspend reality a little bit because, you know, you're growing up in Philadelphia. As much as people were following the Philadelphia Flyers, this this was not considered a hockey hotbed. Um, you know, there's players out of Quebec, in Montreal, Western Canada. In the United States, it's, it's sort of the usual suspect. It's Minnesota and Boston at the time with Michigan starting to show itself. But other than that, um, not a lot of USA players playing in the NHL. No U.S. goalies really to speak of at that moment. So... I did have definitely a dream to be able to play uh, at that level, as did my brother. And that's what we focused on all the time. So I could always kind of imagine my peers in other places like Quebec getting better competition, getting more battle ready. So we would work out with, you know, U.S. hockey pamphlets on how to do dry land training over the summer if we didn't have ice. And there's always some angle to try to improve yourself. I mean, we worked hard, but it was just fun doing that, learning how to take a wrist shot, um, being better with rebound control. You know, we'd play a lot of street hockey with just tennis balls in our back, you know, in our front driveway where he'd be in net, I'd shoot on him, and then I'd be in net and he'd shoot on me. So 
it was something to pass the time and have fun, but it was also working toward that goal. And a big consideration was, you know, are, am I in a big enough pond now to, to improve? And the hockey in Philadelphia was very, very good. I played with some very high quality players, but you know, as you go to Boston or if you were to move and go to Canada, that's a bigger pond. And at the time, if you're going to play, you know, prep school hockey was a way to get into the college. And I definitely wanted to play in college and Northwood school in Lake Placid was considered the best prep hockey in the country um, back in mid eighties, my brother had gone there as a postgraduate. So it was an easy decision for me to go. Um, and I considered, um, junior B hockey. Um, I wanted to go as a freshman. I was writing down showing my parents, Hey, look, you know, I'll take less showers. It'll be cheaper for you. I'm not eating at the house. Like you know, this cost benefit analysis on why I should be elsewhere. And my thought was just go. I, I want to go as a freshman. I want to go as a you know, sophomore and as a junior. And my parents were like, hold on there, tough guy. Like, uh, <laughs> um, you know, understand I'm a parent now. I don't want my kids leaving the house the day before they're, you know, have to go. And um, that was part of it. My father was sick at the time. Um, he had lost his kidneys and he was on dialysis. You know, I was too ignorant and kind of immature to understand what that meant. They both knew it. And I think that was part of their equation is hang here as long as you can. I went away my senior year, played in Lake Placid, loved it, loved the people, loved the town, still have a summer house there, but mostly it was a really good stepping stone to get to college. And, um, you know, a year later when I did enter University of Wisconsin-Madison, my father passed away. So, you know, looking back, I was very fortunate to have parents understand it and, and I was able to spend more time with them those three years before I left. Um, you know, if I had it my way, I would have been gone and, and had even less time with them. So, um, yeah, that was a huge stepping stone personally and, and um, athletically for me. Now, what personal qualities did you evolve at that level of hockey? I mean, eventually, as you grew, not only as a player in skill, but mm -hmm. there were eternal things inside of you that basically enabled you not only to excel at that level and at Wisconsin, but also prepped you for the NHL. What was it inside of you that not only helped you evolve your style, but also your fortitude to become mm -hmm. a great goalie? Well, I think you hit the right word. It's fortitude. You, you have to be able to be, you know, someone said, be comfortable with discomfort. Um, you have to put yourself out there. And I don't mean just physically. I think primarily it's, it's, it's emotionally, psychologically. Um, if you're in a comfort zone, you're probably not growing. Um, you have to go to these plateaus and you see these young kids now, like you watch this Olympic team for the United States. These guys are going to get out of their comfort zone because they're playing against the best in the world. Um, because the NHL is not there, you'll have amateurs, you'll have some college kids going up and playing at a really high level. And it's going to be a difficult thing, but you'll adjust to that. And, and as you do, you hit that new plateau and then you're looking for the next step in the ladder. And I was very fortunate because I had great coaches, not always strategically and tactically, but I think personally, you know, how you approach the game, you know, how to expect winning, how to handle losses, you know, sports, no matter who you are, whether you're Tiger Woods or Tom Brady, you lose a lot of games. You, 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 you have to process that. You have to learn from it. 
And you have to understand that's part of the battle. Never be satisfied with it. Um, you know, there's never so rarely do you play a game where you say, yeah, I was as good as I can be. There's no improvement, you know, here. No, you have to be very understanding that as a human being, you're going to make a ton of mistakes, but hold yourself to a standard. And that balance is very difficult as a young kid, because I had all the try, all the effort, all the desire in the world. But if it's not tempered with some realistic expectations of yourself, you're going to come in and say, all right, it's my first pro game. I'm going to get a shutout. You get lit up for four goals in the first period. Can you even come out for the second period? Are you devastated? And watching players like Grant Fuhr and going to the Rangers and having a coach, um, you know, Ed Jockman was my goaltender coach when I first came in, but having John Van Beesbrook and Bobby Froze there, who were veterans at that time, going, yeah, you're going to get lit up. I get lit up. I've been here 10 years. But what do you do on the next shot? If you just let in your last three, do you save the fourth one or are you gone and it can't help that team? And that's part of maturity. And, you know, in, in, in a couple of weeks here, Henrik Lundqvist is going to have his number retired. That's something he had to struggle through when he first came. This level of demand and perfection of yourself, which is great when things are going well, but can be destructive when it's not. And so that's what I, I really had to learn through experience. And I was super fortunate to have those good coaches coming from Philadelphia, a couple great, great people that really helped me along. Then going to Lake Placid and at Northwood School, a guy named Tom Fleming, who had coached at Acton Boxborough, some great players, Alan Bourbeau and, and um, Tom Barrasso in particular, who was Rookie of the Year and a Vesna winner and just, you know, should be a Hall of Fame goaltender. He had those guys. And I remember him just really looking and saying, you know, you know, we expect you to take over the goaltending job, but, you know, you're going to have to fight for it. And he was very matter of fact. He'd look down the bench and say, number 11's going, number seven's going, number five's going. The rest of these guys aren't. And he wasn't, there was no yelling. There's no screaming. It was just, you produce, you play. And that level of professionalism is something that can be jarring when you haven't seen it before. He's not your friend. He's your kind of mentor. And he's asking you, Lynn, can you go out there and give me a great game? And if you can... I'll give you a second game. If you can't, I'm going to have to give somebody else a spot. And that's what life is. You know, you produce, you play. And I, it was huge help for me then because by the time I got to college where the stakes are higher, it's more difficult, the competition is much better. At least psychologically, I was prepared for someone to look at you and say, hey, are you going to help our team? Or are you just out here to, you know, have fun and say that you got a letter, you know, from the University of Wisconsin? And... um I had two years there and then was able to make the Olympic team, which again is another step up the ladder, but not the huge step of getting to the NHL. I played in 1988 in Calgary with guys like Brian Leach and, and Eric Weinrich and a bunch of guys that went on to have great NHL careers, but we were still young and amateurs. And from there, Leachy went on to the Rangers. I went to the minors and spent a year there. Again, it was a step up even from the Olympic competition, not quite to the NHL. And you had to prove yourself at these small, digestible steps rather than taking a leap that was just too great. I wasn't ready at 18 to play in the NHL. And even Henrik Lundqvist played in that Swedish elite league. And by the time he came here, he was ready for that challenge. And I was super fortunate that Phil Subzito at the time, I, I was drafted um, you know, in 1985 in the second round. And they knew that I had to still go back to college. Uh, you know, Craig Patrick drafted me and he was just great. He said, you know, you have potential, but you have to get there. 
And even Phyllis Pizzito said that. He didn't say, hey, let's see what you can do and throw you to the wolves. He said, develop, man. And um, that, I was very fortunate. Rangers weren't a tremendous team at the time, but they're smart enough to have patience with some of the younger players. And that's, that's, how you, that's how you improve. Now, two of the things that really, really distinguished you as a player, number one was your focus. Everyone mm -hmm. who ever played against you and guys like Brian who played with you said they were just amazed at how you focused during a game. How did you evolve that? And the second quality was your style, your acrobatic style of goaltending, which not only is effective for stopping pucks, but it's entertaining to the fans. They <laughs> loved it. How did those two evolve through Mike Richter? I, I think through what we were just speaking of it, and that is your desire. So if look, if, if you're motivated to do something, you're gonna you're gonna push and poke and find where your weak spots are and where your strengths are and hopefully improve the weak spots and, and, and improve your, your strengths too as well. But it became clear that this what separates a good young goalie at 18 from a guy that a, a franchise in the NHL can rely on is between your ears. So if I'm a fullback or a defensive tackle in football and I'm, you know, putting forth effort, that means I have to outmuscle the guy across from me often and get to the quarterback, for example, to make a sack. As a goaltender, you're a little bit more reactive. You're a little bit more passive. I can't try harder to save the puck. I don't beat the puck up. All of my effort has to be between my ears, my focus. And if you look at the really good players from, you know, Patrick Waugh to Brodeur, you know, guys I played against. Um, you know, I was always so impressed with those guys. Um, they would come with a level of focus. That was their hustle. You, you're not going to skate hard in the crease. You're not going to forecheck. You're not going to backcheck. You don't hit anybody. You focus. And the more you can work that muscle, that has to be the strongest muscle in your body right there. Because if not, Things will be fine when things are fine. But as soon as you run into trouble, and you do, the best goalies get scored on the first shot in the game. Do they save the rest of the, the next 29 and end up winning, you know, two to one for the, or do they give up and say, maybe next time? Um, Grant Fuhr, I was, I mentioned before, was so good at that. And, and Mass had always said that he might be playing okay. And they gave up a lot of scoring opportunities and maybe it's, a, they're losing by four or five goals, but then the Oilers with that great scoring machine could come back and it's all of a sudden overtime. And Grant's already that up five goals. He would buckle down and save that sixth one and they'd end up winning in overtime. And that was something you have to figure out. You're going to have a bad game. Do you come back with a great one? You're going to have two great games. Can you have a third? And so it's that consistency of approach and the, the kind of mental aspect of the game that all sports require, all positions require. But I think it's a premium in goaltending. Um, that position really you either have that or you don't, and you can constantly improve it, which is why Marty Brudeur was an amazing goalie at 18, but at 28, he was a better goalie. When I came out of the Rangers, I had a lot of potential, but I won the cup at 27, and I was a better goalie at 30. Even when Gretzky said that, he said, I think I'm a better player at 31 than I was at 21. Yeah, you're older, and you might even be slowing down. You're losing muscle, but you're getting stronger up here. And if your body could hold out long, like a guy like Messier, you just keep getting better because you know how to prepare. 
you can handle the inevitable challenges and setbacks that sports requires and you just keep going and you have a level of consistency that starts to really make you a valuable member of an organization of a team you can be relied upon so yeah that i i, I had to work hard at that and that was a good thing to go to the minors and 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 learn that and continue to learn it as as a pro but you know by the time i retired at 36 uh, with with a head injury you know that what, what frustrates me is you kind of learned how to play the game in a way that you just didn't know 15 years earlier when you entered the league. I was bigger and stronger probably at 22 years old, but at 36, 37, 38, man, I, I knew, I knew how to approach the game. I knew how to push through injuries. I knew how to push through sicknesses. If I was having a bad game, I could write the ship. Those are things that are really, really valuable and great players. Like we just mentioned, Hank was able to do that across his career on a real consistent basis. And that's, that's the that's the challenge, and that's what I love about the sport is it teaches you that personal discipline, and the um, I guess the uh, uh, that focus that you really need to be successful. Now another component, Mike, is pressure. Hmm. Pressure to make the NHL. Pressure when you got to the Rangers, hmm. and yeah, as you said, you've got Johnny Van Beesbrook there, an established goalie, and now you yourself have got to, of course, in order to play every day, become better than a guy like John who mm-hmm. was already battle-tested and NHL-proven. Yep. Now, those pressures kind of stay with you no matter how many games you play, and especially when you get to 1994, which, of course, is the top of the mountain for you as a player. In 1994, you guys have a real good team. And you win the President's Cup, and everybody is expecting a lot from you, yet the pressure is different from the Rangers' standpoint, Mm -hmm. from the fans' standpoint, and even the club. They haven't won a championship in 54 years. Now, they are looking not only to Mark Messier, who they'd acquire for his leadership skills, but most importantly, they're looking to Mike Richter to kind of carry them through these playoffs and bring that cup to New York. What kind of pressures did you face personally as that journey continued on in 94? Uh, It's it's a good question, but it's going back to one of your original ones, why did you play the sport and the position in particular? And you know, that comes to the territory. It, it, it's a really gratifying thing to say, my team needs me. This is how I help. I'm the piece of the puzzle. Um, and I got to play my part. And if everybody else does, we'll more often than not come out successful. And Mess in particular was very good about that. You know, he said, everybody's got a role to play here. And, and, you know, from the stick boy to the top scorer on the team, you better do your job and damn well do it right if you're going to expect success. And so as a goalie, by the time we got to that position, we had failed a bunch. We had had a lot of success too. As you said, we had won the President's Trophy in 91, I think it was, and then didn't really perform in the playoffs. I didn't perform in the playoffs. And you better learn from that. It's either going to kill you or you're going to learn from it and come back stronger. And that ability to to take a, a hit and come back is vital. I mean, we we had a lot of pressure on us going into the playoffs because we had performed so well during the season. But 
we had enough of a veteran team that had been through these battles where we didn't say, all right, now we're just going to throw our hat in the ring, ring and we're going to beat the Islanders. That is one of the best rivalries in, in sport, but certainly in hockey. And so do you think those guys who came in eighth seed in the East are going to roll over and say, yeah, let's let the Rangers come in here and slap us around. They're going to fight like dogs. And we knew that. And so we were not unprepared when that, you know, opening uh, puck dropped. And the first two games were back-to-back afternoon games. I think we won six nothing on both of them. And you know what we did in the third game when we're up to nothing after scoring 12 goals and allowing none, we went to work and played really hard again and took nothing for granted. And, you know, mess, I can remember him saying to Leachy on the way over to the fourth game, he said, the fourth game, closing out any team, no matter what the score has been, is going to be your hardest game. And that proved to be this, the case on all of our rounds going forward. The team had talent. They had pride. They had hatred of us. We had hatred of them. So nothing is going to be given for free. You better show up and play. It doesn't matter what you did in the first 80 games. What are you doing this afternoon? How do you prepare yourself? And are you able to take the setbacks that are going to come, the, the obstacles that they're going to put in your way? They had an excellent team. And so we we never took our foot off the gas, nor did they. And I mean, you know, I can remember in the press, it was like, well, we're out scoring them 12 nothing in the first two games. The series is over. Not a chance. We didn't look at that. We didn't think about it that way. We just said we have a... A, a, a shift to go out and win, a period to go out and win for the third game, for the fourth game. And when it's over, it's over. But keeping with that theme, we went on to play Washington and beat them in five. They didn't give it to us. We had to take it. But then look at New Jersey. You know, we were down a game. Then we came back. We're up a couple games. Then we're back down. We're facing elimination. Never wavered from what we were as a team and what we could accomplish. New Jersey is an excellent team. They're second best team in the league that year. They're going to present a problem for us. They're not going to give us the games for free. They have an excellent netminder. They're physical. They're mean. They're talented. And um, so, sure, we're, we're going to have to take a punch or two, but we had enough staying power and enough experience and enough focus to come back. And that, to me, is everything. So, yeah, that, that that's the pressure that you want. And I'm, to this day, so feel so fortunate that you were able to be pushed so hard by a team like New Jersey to be in a seventh game, have two double overtimes and walk away victorious. That's cool. That's that's when you're pushed to your to your limit and you find out who you are. Now, did you feel uh, two things? Number one, did you feel a lot of pressure in they say the last two games, trying, as you say, to close out that series? And that series was not like any other playoff series that any New York Ranger team had had. The 72 team had gotten there, and they couldn't quite come as close. Mm -hmm. Here you are, ready to go to the toppest mountain possible in hockey, something that a New York Ranger team hadn't done in 54 years. How confident were you that you could get that job done? Uh, we were confident, but look, you have to be just as as much as we were, sh- you know, sure that we could beat any team. We had all year long. We knew damn well that we could lose any game. You know, you get to the playoffs, that, that conference finals with a team like New Jersey, you better bet that they're going to come with everything they have. And same thing with Vancouver. People are like, oh, well, you know, after you get through the Jersey round, well, it's Vancouver, they weren't ranked very high. They just went through three rounds for a reason. They had game breakers on the team. They had a ton of character. They were tough as nails. We had wars with them during the season. We almost had a bench clearing brawl. 
I mean, they didn't back in there. They didn't get in there because they were lucky. They were hitting their peak ability at the right time. They walked into the playoffs without too much pressure and started playing unbelievable hockey. They were healthy. They were determined. They were well coached. Um, they had the Russian Rocket, who was, you know, the most kind of exciting player in the world at that time. Uh, Kirk McLean, their goaltender, was playing unbelievably. They had big, mean, tough, experienced defensive core. It was a hell of a team, you know, and I think people, we didn't see them much over here. So it would be easy to not take them seriously. They beat us in the first game, and that gets you a little focused. Um, but I thought we played very, very well across that series. Um, you know, we had a, a, a coach that demanded so much from us, but the key is on a personal level, we had veteran players that demanded a lot of ourselves. Whether Mike Keenan was going to yell or not only helped. Whether the other team was going to challenge us only helped. But what did you have inside, internally, within that locker room, within your, your yourself? What did you demand of yourself? Did you say, eh, you know, we played okay and that's good enough? Or did you say, look, I'm going to play my absolute max. I'm going to put the, you know, pedal down and go as hard as I can and we'll see what happens after the game. That's a type of approach that really great professionals like the Kevin Lowe's of the world and the Jeff Bukabones, the Leachies, the Gravies, the Messes demand of themselves and demand of the guys around them. And that's really what yields success. You know, Kevin Lowe said something that I thought was so interesting going into, maybe it was, I think it was the playoffs and someone said, Hey man, it's been 54 years. Do you guys feel that pressure? And Kevin was like, you know, he just showed up the year before. He doesn't have this history that's been following him around. He had won four Stanley Cups over in Edmonton, five. And um, he said, man, it's been 54 years. You guys are, yeah, how do you think about that? He goes, well, look at the upside if you win. And it was such a good way of viewing it. He's just like, I'm not scared of this thing. I embrace it. Let's talk about winning it and 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 and, and reap the benefits from, from having enough courage to say it and go out and do it. Now, you have, as you said, a stellar career, even post-championship. You become as good a goaltender as there was in the world. 2002, you win a silver medal as an Olympian for the United States. Um, but your career kind of starts to wind down. And unfortunately, because of injury, you are kind of forced to retire. You probably didn't want to retire at that time. But you kind of, the doctor said to you, Mike, it's probably time for you to stop playing. You decide. I'm sorry. Go ahead, okay. please. No. Along the lines, you know, towards the end of your career, you must be thinking about what the next steps are going to be. How soon before you stopped playing did you kind of evolve or think about a next step towards what it was you wanted to do? after hockey? It's a great question. Um, I, you know, I always took my, my schooling seriously and, and I understood the concept that there would be a career after hockey, but you have to be careful. Um, I think in, in considering that, that's just responsibility. You know, I mean, I've got, you know, by the end of my career, I had wife and kids and everything else. And you say, well, what are you going to do? But you have to be careful. I used to work with a sports psychologist down in Florida, uh, Dr. Jim Lair. He's an amazing guy, and he worked with a lot of tennis players, Agassi and Sampras, and across all sports. And, you know, he used to say, all right, I had an injury. How do you view this year? I'm coming back a month late from the knee injury or 
you know, what worked last year, what didn't. It's just, it's strategy. And one of the things that he had said early on was, look, man, let's not think about your first career before your second one's over. In the summertime, when I was young, I had left school as a sophomore and, you know, it was the right thing to do. I went and played in the Olympic team. I came back that year and went to summer school, signed a pro contract, played with the Rangers in the minors, came back, went to summer school, played with the, you know, top team in the NHL, you know, made the Rangers squad, went to summer school probably five or six years, you know, taking a class or two, chipping away, which is a good thing um, because I think you do at that time in the beginning, it helps in my eyes it was great to take a class in, you know, May or June for a couple of weeks. And it sort of, it gives you some distance from the, the season that just was. You have a couple of weeks where you don't have to train too hard. And then you start ramping up and get ready for the season. But at some point, you know, do you have a foot in both worlds? And once I had kids, I, if I'm going to class in the summertime and it compromises my preparation for the following year in any manner, I'm not being as professional as I can be. And when you really take a step back and look at it, you have such a short window to play any sport. The longest career, um, Messier's, um, you know, you're going to be compromised. You're going to have a 20-year career. You're going to be leaving the sport a fairly young adult. Maybe you're exactly. 35, maybe you're 40. You have time to do that. This window will close and they do not ask you to strap the pads back on and play anymore. So make the most of it. And I really started having a sense of urgency. Um, in the When you're young, you're trying to make the squad. When you make the squad, you want to be a top player. When you start to become a top player, you want to just have a legacy. But then there's a point at which you go, my God, you know, at some point, this is going to be over. I don't know when it is. And I, I have to tell you, Lynn, I was probably more prepared to retire at 23 if things didn't work out than I would have been at 33 because you become that athlete. You have that expectation of being one of the, you know, 700 players in the world that can play at that level. And you're used to it. And you kind of demand that of yourself. And the thought that you were just going to have it stop full and go on to do something else at a lower level, of course, you're not going to be an elite anything compared to what you were as, as a player on the ice is a little bewildering. And so you, the tendency is, well, I better start, you know, gaining momentum for the second career. Not if it's taken away from your first. And I really appreciate that advice was like, don't start your second career with, if it takes anything away from your first. And so I just held on for dear life and said, I am going to, you know, I'll go back to school. I'll have that period, uh, that, that kind of transition period when I'm done but I am going to squeeze everything I can out of this career. You know, I had two knee surgeries and had to battle back. And that is a full time mentally and physically to get back to form. Um, and, you know, by the time I, I fractured my skull in, 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 in 2000, uh, what, uh, two, three season. And it's a shame because I really felt like I was healthy otherwise at the time and playing you know, at a top level and felt like I had a lot to contribute. And I know I had another five so years in me. Um, but that's part of the deal is, is that it's a finite thing. Even if you're not injured at some point, someone knocks on your door and says, it's over, you can't play anymore. So, you know, on you go, going back to school was really kind of cathartic for me because it's hard, man. You lose a big portion of your life. I was just listening to a Lin Lindsay Vaughn podcast and she said, it's kind of like a death. Your, your understanding of who you are and what you do is gone. 
like that personality, that part of you, which has been 99% of you for the last 20 years, I had played hockey almost my entire life. So at 38, when you're saying, what am I doing for the rest of my life? God, that was 35 years of playing hockey, 33 years of playing hockey. I didn't know life without being serious about it. I still play men's league and stuff, but it's not your focus and it doesn't consume you and you miss that huge hole. But there are other things out there and you have to find them. And I think going back to school was enormously important because, A, I like learning and it was cool and it gave me some time and it's a great lifestyle. You're learning every day. You don't feel as old. When you leave the sport of hockey at, I think, 36, 37, 38, I felt like I was 100 years old because all the guys coming in, you know, they're 18 years old, so they're looking at you as old man. But, you know, in terms of life, a 36-year-old person's pretty young and you have a lot to learn, hopefully a lot to give. Um, and so that helped me think about that. Now, going back to school with 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds when you're 36, you do feel a little old. But, you know, that, that the whole process of learning, um, I think, is really energizing and makes you feel young. And it's so in that regard, it's good. It, it takes your mind off of what you just lost and starts to make you think about what's ahead. And that's vital because if you just, you know, put a bow on it and say, well, I'm going to retire now, you, you, that's fine. You can. But I, to me, it felt like I was just sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, waiting around for the next retirement, which is death. And so uh, I, I felt like I just want to go out and do something. I have a young family. It's, it's good for them to see you working and everything else. You know, by the time... My kids, my oldest boy went to the Olympics in Salt Lake in 2002, watched me play, but he was two years old. I've got pictures of him, but he doesn't have memories of it. So I think it's important to role, be a role model for them on, on what you can do. And hopefully you keep learning your whole life and contributing and, and, and growing. And um, that keeps you young and that keeps you, I don't know, valuable as a member of society. Sure. Now, when you get to Yale, you study ethics politics and economics and with a kind of major in environmental policy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that obviously was in you for a long time. What was it that drew you not only to these courses of study, but also this major as a future stepping stone to what you would become? Well, that was a ethics, politics, and economics. It's, it's, there's, there's, I think it came from like, uh, Oxford or, you know, the original thought was politics, philosophy, and, and economics. And the idea is how all these things intersect, right? What kind of, there's a philosophy behind what political system you have and, and what economic system you have. And for me, starting off in a way with my undergraduate degree, again, at that age, it was good to get an overview. It's a nice way of saying you have no <laughs> no focus, buddy. Figure it out. Get a Get the large picture here. And it really was excellent. You know, there's a lot of history involved in that. There's, there's poli-sci, there's sociology, there's economics, all practical things. But how do these things relate together? And the one thing that I did know, I love the idea of public service. I was very much thinking of going into politics at the time. And still, you want to run for Congress, right, Mike? Yeah, I, I did consider that. You know, my father served in World War II as a captain in the Army in Asia, um, you know, he said that the country needs him. How can I contribute? And he contributed in his own way. And in a lot of ways, think how 
fortunate you, you are to be as a, as a professional athlete, maybe it's time to give back. And there's lots and lots of ways of doing that. But public service is a pretty noble calling. I mean, I wouldn't think that most people would describe it as that given the political climate now, but it is ultimately. And But there's other ways of doing that. There's not-for-profit, there's volunteer, there's all kinds of things. My first thought is get a little bit educated, get some experience so I can actually be somewhat effective doing anything that I choose to do. And um, the environment was one kind of area that I had a great interest in. I always did. I, I, you know, when you're an athlete, you spend so much time on the road, so much time traveling, preparing for games, waiting. Um, you know, once you're done your practice today, what do you do between today and tomorrow other than, you, you know, focus, do what you need to do, go see a movie, um, have dinner, uh, all the training that you need to do, but a lot of it is downtime. So if you got a five hour cross country flight, you know, I'd just be reading books and a lot of them was on all kinds of resource efficiency and whatnot. The things that you see that's kind of common nowadays, thank God, people are thinking about it more, but everything from water to energy, you know, we, we've got a need to be efficient about these things. And there's probably a good intersection with finance there where you can make a living doing it. But these are things we need, whether you're working for an NGO or um, government or a private company. Um, that's an area that I have a great deal of interest in. I think, you know, morally it's the right thing to do, but practically it's a necessity. I mean, there's only so many, uh, so much clean water. There's only so much food and clean air. And that's what we're trying to do is figure out how to make it, you know, equitable and worth um, people, um, you know, moving toward uh, cleaner and, and, and more abundance one way or another with our resources. So that's a long way of saying the environment fascinated me on, on almost every level. And going back to Yale, they, their, their forestry school is, you know, fantastic. And I've met so many good people there and they didn't care whether you're 36 years old or 16 years old, they just, you know, contribute in class and you'll be treated well. And I, it was a amazing time. Three young boys that were growing up in, in, on the coast of Connecticut and, you know, going to school and riding my bike around campus, coming home, do homework, changing some diapers, um, you know, <laughs> still, still got to, but it was really, it was a good time because, you know, you are, it's, it, you're mourning a loss there. There's like a death uh, in your life that you, you have a hard time getting out of that shadow a little bit, but this was, I was excited to get up every morning. It was a challenge. Um, you know, when you feel like you're growing and improving, that's a pretty positive place to be. So that was a great springboard for my career. Now, you, you get involved with some entities like the Sierra Club and like Riverkeeper that got you actually involved with the workings of the environment. But one of the most important things you did was in 2007, you founded the Environmental Capital Partners. So you put the financial end of it to the practical end. What was that like for you? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, there was a professor at Yale in the forestry school, actually, that was moving away from his, his academic career, wanted to be in the um, capital markets himself. Um, I was introduced to a couple of people that had been private equity world and saying, look, you know, there's an awful lot of kind of macro trends here on, on resource efficiency. Why don't we put together a fund that um, supports companies and processes that turn out clean water, clean air, um, recycling programs. Um, and I, you know, learned a ton. I mean, I was primarily in business development. Um, it is 
spectacularly interesting. Um, and I, to this day, I'm in that spot. Uh, then we were looking at companies to buy. Um, now we're looking at projects to support. And either way, the idea is to, um, you know, use the capital markets to support the practical realities that there's limited resources and kind of unlimited demand. And, you know, this isn't rocket science, you know, we, 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 it's complicated. There's a lot of political will that needs to go into it. But I really believe you don't, there's not just the Sierra Clubs of the world. They do great work, but the NGOs have their place. Government has its place and the capital markets have the place. These are big issues that aren't going to go away unless everybody and every type of um, aid that you can have comes to the rescue. And that's, that's what we're doing now. So now moving on to the company that you're with right now, Brightcore, one of the terms you use is better energy. Mm -hmm. Give us a little background on Brightcore, why you got involved with Brightcore, and where do you think it's going to go in the future, especially in terms of Mike Richter? Well, it's a continuation of, of that first company, Environmental Capital Partners. They're great people. We got washed out in the 2010 um, you know, the stock market crash. Um, actually, uh, it was New York Bank, Private Bank and Trust that had put a lot of money behind us and they were great partners, but they had to uh, discontinue after that for a variety of reasons. So the question we were kind of dealt with, do we start a new fund in the same idea? We had made some great investments and had some success uh, as a young company. I went off and started doing a project finance company, uh, Healthy Planet Partners, that turned basically into what we are today. Um, I bought into this um, Bright Core Energy about five years ago. My two partners who started were Lehman Structured Finance guys. They understand how to underwrite all kinds of projects in a really sophisticated way. And um, they started under Lehman doing solar and learned how to do that. And they said, this technology works great, but there needs to be more sophistication in the financing of it. And that's what they do. And that's what we currently do. So we go into the commercial uh, municipal space, all types of facilities and say, look, you know, take the Empire State Building. The Malkin family really did a great job of uh, upgrading the infrastructure within. But if you look across the New York City, New York State, 70 to 80 percent of the buildings out there are going to be there in 30 or 40 years. Are we still going to be using oil furnaces? We've moved away from coal in buildings. Now we have oil and natural gas. We're starting to get to electrification and very efficient technology. And that's what we're doing. We're actually underwriting these things or at least putting the technology in that makes the buildings run better. It's, it would be like Lynn taking your car and putting in a better carburetor. So instead of getting 20 miles to the gallon, you're getting 80 miles to the gallon. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to shrink the pollution that is created, but ultimately we're selling savings because efficiency in terms of, of, of your energy is also the elimination of waste, both financial and, and physical. So there's, there's, look, there's less um, greenhouse gases being emitted. There's better heating, there's better lighting. Um, you know, in my house here, this house is, you know, from the turn of the century, I've taken out uh, the old boiler. I'm starting to do that now. I've taken out the lighting and put in more efficient lighting. It should pay to do the right thing. And that's what my company does. We'll find inefficiencies in your infrastructure and we'll upgrade them. It's as simple as that. Mike, you know, it's an amazing story, not only from the standpoint of, you know, doing something to give back to such an important part of our lives, but
but also looking at the future, looking at how we can affect future aspects of this very, very important issue. And that is what you appear to be doing. And just like all the rest of your career, you're doing it with a strong focus. And not only are you learning every day, but you're growing every day. People can follow Mike on his website. They can follow him on LinkedIn. They can follow him on Twitter. They can follow him on YouTube. And all of you that have tuned in today have discovered just how unique an individual Mike Richter is, not from only the hockey standpoint, but from the life journey standpoint. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. You've been a wonderful guest. Lynn, thanks, man. We've known each other a long time. Appreciate uh, sharing the journey and so many steps with you. So uh, yeah, we'll talk again, I'm sure, but I appreciate it. Great to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye-bye.